Hello and welcome to Navigating Nursing. I am your host, Laura Whitehead, a registered adult nurse, a critical care nurse, qualified lecturer and fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Welcome to series two of Navigating Nursing. This series is the leadership series and I'm joined today by Nikki Credlin, who is the chair of the British Association of Critical Care Nurses. She's a senior lecturer and head of department at the University of Hull. Hi Nikki, and thanks so much Hi, for coming Laura. today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So did you always know that you wanted to be a nurse? No, <laughs> no, I was never one of those people that always wanted to go into nursing ever since being a child. It wasn't even something that was particularly on my radar when I was younger. I left school after doing my A-levels and worked for an engineering company. Um, so something completely, completely different. nothing to do with nursing whatsoever. Um, worked for an engineering company as an area sales manager and then had my children and then decided to go to university and do a nursing degree after I'd had my daughter. I think it's really common a lot of my students and um, particularly in the apprenticeship cohorts at the moment are people that have had completely different careers yeah. and you've worked throughout intensive care and critical care environments you've worked in ITU as a nurse you've also been a sister for the critical care outreach team throughout your training was intensive care and critical care was that an area that you were drawn to? So again Again, really interesting because I'm going to have to say no. <laughs> so I never had an intensive care placement during my training at all. Um, so I finished my undergrad training and went to work on an acute medical ward and I was quite happy. I, I enjoyed my job. I, I really enjoyed the, the ward that I worked on um, and it was a, a colleague who I'd done my nurse training with who worked on the intensive care unit straight from qualifying, who basically rang me up one day and said, look, you need to come and have a look at intensive care. I think you'll really like it. Why don't you just come and spend a couple of days with us? And I was like, why, what do I want to do that for? I'm happy it where I am. He kept saying, oh, go on, go on, come and, have a look, come and have a look, come and see what you think. So I ended up going and spending a couple of days on the ICU at the hospital that I ended up working in. And within a couple of days, I knew straight away that yes, absolutely, this is where I went to work. So I applied for the next staff nurse post that came available. And so kind of that's the story from then on, really. I bet your friend is so smug. <laughs> and they like, I knew. I bet every time you do something, they're like, that was me. <laughs> and, and, and funnily enough, my friend that I did the training with is um, a bloke called Jim. And Jim's a charge nurse on that unit now. Hi, Jim. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> this is all your fault. <laughs> so go, Jim. <laughs> yeah, go, Jim. He needs to be a careers <laughs> advisor. He's clearly got a neck for it. <laughs> So you're a head of department at the University of Hull and you're also a senior lecturer. Was again, was was lecturing or education or training, was that something that you always had an interest in or was that was that another job recommendation? So no, so no it wasn't. Um, and I think I think before I did my nurse training, again, it was it wasn't really something that I thought about. I think go, probably going through school when you're starting to talk to careers advisors and things. I'd thought about teaching a little bit. I'd had um, a placement while I was at school um, in an infant school and I'd kind of moved the idea of doing my teacher training around at one point, but never really particularly seriously. But then when I did my nurse training um, and once I started to mentor student nurses myself, then I decided actually I really love teaching. I've always, that point on, always in the back of my head that at some point I wanted to sort of explore that teaching part of the role more. And especially in intensive care, there's, you know, new skills being taught all the time. There's kind of a constant, I felt like when I was, when you were at clinically, there's almost a conveyor belt of people that are yeah. constantly being trained. So you kind of think teaching and education is, I think they run really well. Yeah. working in intensive care and how found... much you learn as well it's not just about passing your knowledge on to other people 
but actually you learn so much by teaching you, do. you know you gain so much knowledge yourself by teaching I, I keep hearing and I always have heard that once you leave clinical practice that's it you become out of date and that there's a real lack of understanding about just how much you learn by not being stood next to a bed and by doing a different role or a different you know take a different opportunity be that teaching or research or whatever it might be and I think that can put I think it put not put me off but it's a worry isn't it you think oh if I step away from the bedside yeah. does that mean I'm out of date does that mean that when I go back and do a shift I'm going to stand there and and have and you're completely right you're if anything I think it gives you the time I, you know I'm going to start teaching on the intensive care course at Middlesex um, in January and you know the amount of reading and the prep and the and the guidelines and the policy you realize actually I did know this in the back of my mind from shifts but actually now I'm aware of everything that's been updated I'm aware of every kind of debate and discussion again actually I don't feel like when I go back I'm lacking in terms of you know we've now moved the syringes from this box to the other box you know kind of those things but but not in terms of a knowledge kind of base I think as well feedback is such a big thing isn't it I think getting feedback from senior nurses bay coordinators I had been qualified a couple of years when I went into intensive care and I hadn't had the amount of kind of feedback or instruction or bedside teaching in any other kind of unit. No, I'd no that's in. right. And I think it's part of postgrad education as well. You know, the, the people that we train on intensive care courses are already qualified nurses. So they're, they're coming to do postgraduate education. And part of postgraduate education, it's not just about, you know, people like us standing there and giving our knowledge to somebody else. It's about that too, we're learning and I learn just as much from my students as I'm sure they do from me. That's a really powerful way of learning things. And especially when you've got such a variety of intensive care units. And again, yeah, we just some cardiac nurses come in and, and no one else has looked after post-op cardiac patients and they're discussing you know, the monitoring and the care and what, and what their concerns are, the opposite of trauma. So even yeah. within, we kind of, critical care is one speciality but we've got so many kind of sub so many nuances of it that we can't I've never looked after a patient that's on ECMO for example so I can learn so much by listening to other nurses but work in an ECMO centre so yeah it's exciting about education I'm learning all the time be it you're the one that's imparting knowledge or equally you're the one that's listening to students and getting knowledge back definitely so you're also I don't know how you find time to, to squeeze this in as well you're the chair of the British Association of Critical Care Nurses can you just explain a little bit for everyone listening about the work that the charity does and your position your role as the chair yes yeah, so so we're the um, biggest nursing organization devoted specifically to critical care nursing um, so we've got over 2,000 members we um, we have our own uh, journal impact factor journal um, we have various different learning opportunities various grant and research opportunities um, website uh, conference every year so it's it's a big organization my role in it I'm the chair of the organization so I'm I guess I'm ultimately in charge of what happens for the period of my of me being chair and, and my role I guess it is about that strategic leadership So strategic leadership of the organisation itself. So making sure that the organisation is moving in the way that we want it to. So we're developing um, new ways of working. We're looking at getting new members, whether it's looking at different ways of um, managing research, whether it's different ways of managing education. So from from an organisational point of view, my job is to kind of lead that progression. But equally, my role also means that I've got a strategic responsibility for critical care nurses more broadly. So um, it gives me the opportunity to sit on national critical care uh, forums, so things like 
some national outreach, the national emergency care, things like the UK CCNA, United Kingdom Critical Care Nurses Alliance, the National Leadership Forum, Department of Health and, and NHSC specialist panels. So it's and that's about pushing the nursing agenda in critical care forward and making sure that critical care nurses have got a seat at the table and making our voices heard and that we are instrumental in whatever change is being is being done at the time. So it's about making sure that we have change that we are part of instrumenting rather than just having done to us a strategic objective, I guess. And actually this year, 2020, wasn't anything that anyone expected being that voice well has been so pivotal hasn't it this this year has just been just the most bizarre scary stressful but equally exciting years I guess you know to be to be part of something so totally unexpected and to be able to make sure that the voices of ICU nurses are heard as far up as as absolutely possible it, it is is something that I am unbelievably proud of and the work done by the BSECN and our partner organisations this year has just been outstanding and I think as well I think the general public everyone through Covid has almost developed their own opinion of intensive care haven't they we've all got our own we should be doing this we should be opening the nightingales and I think actually having kind of a clear voice of someone advocating I think we've all got quite frustrated sometimes by the certain news articles and how the media have kind of reported intensive care and intensive care nursing yeah and it's a it's about kind of trying to balance some of that, isn't it? You know, you you're always going to get people who just completely disregard what you say. You're always going to get people that think they know better, despite never having worked in these environments or having any knowledge of them themselves. Um, so, so for me, it's about making sure that we put forward an educated and informed opinion. And all we can do is continue to say that, keep saying it as many times as we possibly can. I don't think the general public really ever understood what intensive care nursing was full stop. I think if, if you picked a thousand members of the general public and asked what do you think an intensive care nurse does, I don't, I don't think we would have got anywhere near a remote answer. I think that's probably improved a little bit, but I still do think there's a, there's a, a long way to go. But until we start to stand up and shout for our profession and shout for our specialty particularly and, and try and get rid of some of these negative just made up make-believe opinions then we're not going to get any, anywhere forward and I guess that as, as chair of the organisation that's my job um, you know it's to make sure that that people get a sensible informed view uh, of the actual facts and I think as well I think as nurses we're really good at advocating aren't we for our patients and their relatives and the care and I think is we we forget about ourselves yeah and I think particularly especially with Covid we we see about the fair pay we see about the working hours we see about you know we, we have the discussions and you that almost is like a removed process where I think my sister's a firefighter and the fire brigade union are really powerful they're really strong they're they've got very high attendance rates when they vote they can pretty much guess before kind of where the ballot's going to go and they've got quite a high engagement it's just been really interesting to hear her experience of having you know joined depression about five years ago versus nursing and I think sometimes we're a bit far removed aren't we we kind of get so hurt up in our shifts and our lives and our rotors maybe that we kind of don't have enough energy or almost don't have that voice to then advocate for ourselves yeah and, and I sometimes think with nursing 
every time and we're in the same position now so there's this there's this narrative about nurses being heroes and nurses being angels you know and we were all born to do the job and we do it out of the you know the the good of our you know we don't need paying properly we don't need to have it was like a non-religious do you know what I mean it's almost like if you're called to it then yes that's that's a really good example the fact oh yes it's a calling no it's not you know we're, we're a group of professionals who has undergone degree level training to do a job and we deserve to be protected and respected for that and I think all too often all you hear in the news is about nurses demanding more pay and while I absolutely think that nurses should be financially recompensed for the job that we do there's a whole other raft of issues related to recruitment and retention of nurses and if you asked a lot of nurses pay is not necessarily the thing that's highest on the list So it's about that element of respect, about being protected at work, about working in a good working environment, having access to education, having access to, you know, development opportunities. And and yet that's never focused on. The focus is always just about how much money you're going to get. And I'm not sure that necessarily always does us a big favour. Yeah, that's fair. And I think as well, the whole clapping on a Thursday. um, Yeah. (laughs) And I can I can understand that the general public felt that they needed some way to say thank you. And I, and I understand that. I get that completely. I think the thing that we've, that as a profession, lots of people that I've spoken to are not necessarily just in nursing either, have found that those people that were stood on a Thursday clapping are now saying, why do we need to wear masks? And now being rude to hospital staff because we're not allowing visitors in certain areas you know, are actually, their behaviour on one hand is very different to their behaviour on another. If you want to support nurses, if you want to support the NHS, then wear your mask, wash your hands and keep away from people. Clapping on a front doorstep isn't going to protect any of us. Yeah, And and that's the thing that most of us really want. We just want that respect and we just want to be protected from this. And it's almost that offset, isn't it? If I do that good thing, then I can still, I don't know, go on that night out, go to the pub and and not follow those kind of quite strict rules that that have then been put in place yeah so have you got any advice for anyone that's in that's looking at kind of applying for a leadership role or that wants to take on a leadership role from what you've learned throughout all the different hats that you wear I guess from my experience of of leadership both from a from my job from a university the job I actually get paid for point of view (laughs) and from the national stuff that I do there's kind of two main things for me that are kind of always at the back of my mind when I'm thinking about whatever decisions I need to make or whatever it might be. One of them is about compassion. So it's about the fact that, you you know, if, if you are lucky enough to be in a role where you are responsible for the welfare of other people, be that staff, be that patients, be that anyone, you know, you, you have to genuinely care about them. You know, you need to be interested that their dogs just died or their husband's unwell or their child's now having to self-isolate because they're off school. It's not just about trying to get people to work harder or work differently. People will do that automatically if they feel that they are supported, cared for, and that their boss has got their back. And I think they've so, got their back is the big yeah. the big one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we all feel like that. You know, I, I've got a boss as well. I'm really lucky that I can genuinely say my boss has got my back. Uh, and that that gives all of us the, the, the power, I guess, for want of a better word, to, to stand up and probably be a bit more outspoken than we might do otherwise so I guess that's the first thing genuinely just caring about people this is a a people leadership is a people profession 
Um, so if you don't care about people, you're probably not in the right job. <laughs> and the other thing, I guess, for me is about that idea that you need to be a bit brave. You, you, need, to, you need to not be so worried about what people think of you and not try to make decisions that people might like because you will have to make decisions that are difficult, that go against the grain, that people are not going to be happy with. But for me, it's about making sure that as long as you can, as long as you can give a really good rationale why you've needed to make that decision, what reasons you've made it for, what impact it will have, and what the outcome is going to be, and you do that in a way that takes your staff along with you, then even those decisions that some people don't agree with will will not be as challenging. So, you know, again. Should you be in a leadership role, if you're not prepared to stand up, stand your ground and stamp your feet? Probably not. Day-to-day leadership, when everything is running nice and smoothly, is easy. You can just let your staff go on with it. They don't really need you there particularly. You're just there to oversee an event, whatever it might be. It's when we end up in situations like this year where the proverbials hit the fan, let's face it, mm. and, and everybody has had to step up. And, and that's when leadership becomes difficult. And, and that's when it, it really challenges you. And that's when you really do need to be brave. I think particularly with, you know, I was saying to my work colleagues, you know, especially lecturing, you know, we've, we all went online with some people like, like a weekend's notice yeah. um it's a completely different skill set isn't it you're what we like about education and teaching you know my students are really funny they're really engaged they really make me laugh and I really like that face-to-face engagement yeah. that and you know when you teach a really good lesson and you've got the class and they're really engaged it's not that it's not the same on zoom that no. you can really try and, and we've and we've, we're really, really all giving it a good go but it's a different job isn't it yeah um in a lot of ways it is absolutely and you're also you know you're dealing with staff are really stressed be they clinical or academic staff it doesn't really make it they're stressed for different reasons but that doesn't mean that one type of stress is any easier than the other is you know I, I know i know the staff that i work with at the university they're in the same position as you they've had to completely change the way that we work we've had to change programs around at very short notice We've made changes at nine o'clock in the morning, by which point at three o'clock in the afternoon, the government guidance has changed. So we need to change it all again. That's really stressful. Mm. So staff are stressed on their own. They've also got their husbands, wives, partners working from home as well, who are equally stressed with whatever job they've got. They've got their kids that have been home. They've had to try and figure out how to balance, you know, homeworking alongside teaching their children um, whatever lessons of the day they had to support. That's really, that's really challenging. And then on top of that, we're teaching students who are student healthcare professionals in the middle of a global pandemic, who are equally really stressed and finding the challenge, finding the transition really difficult. So you've kind of got a melting pot of an awful lot of stress and somehow have to try and figure out a way of dampening that. I think as well, I think a lot of the students have almost looked to us to tell them it's all going to be okay yeah. or like when is this going to be over then do you think I remember someone going, so do you think what a couple of months because I guess they're used to coming to us for the answers yeah and, and we normally do have an answer or have a way of finding out whatever this you know the solution to their problem but with this it was like oh, I've yeah. got absolutely no idea and I think do you think and it's like we can hope and we can make educated guesses but yeah we don't know, do we? And, you know, and oh, we're in another lockdown now. Oh, so all clinical skills have got to be rearranged. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would never have thought if we had this discussion this time last year, you, we would, we, we just wouldn't be having it. We would, we yeah, would this would be a non. Thought that within twelve months we would be in the place that we're in now after having done the things that we've done this year. 
no and particularly like just, like, just took over the program leadership for one of our apprenticeship cohorts and I think I just finalized the timetable literally in March like the first week of March and then the dot rang and was like um yeah Laura so we're gonna need to rearrange all of their placements and their whole timetable and I was like oh oh that's good I'll just just I'll just, I'll just do that again then and then you're emailing people and they're like we've already organized this I'm like no that's that's not a thing anymore sorry yeah um so you're right we would never have guessed that this year would ever have looked like anything that it did no. it's, got some re- it's got some really positives as well you know I, I said I said right when you asked me what what I thought of the year and I said it's been you know really challenging I'm sure there's lots of us that have cried at numerous parts of the year I know I have without doubt um, but equally, there's been some really, really positives come out of this. The fact that we can change this quickly and adapt to things this quickly it is a testament to the amazing staff that we've got without, without question. Um, the fact that we've managed to achieve what we've all achieved in the space of the time that we've achieved it in. We've still had students which have qualified. We've still yeah. had students that are passing their assessments. You know, that, that is just unbelievable really in the space of time and with the challenges that have been thrown at both us from an academic point of view and the students and the mentors in practice who have been serious up against it as well mm-hmm. and, th- and then that that coming together of people that joint working you know the whole idea we've, we've talked for years and years haven't we about multidisciplinary teams and how we all work in a multidisciplinary team and to a certain degree I think we've probably made, paid lip service to it a little bit in certain areas But I think this year has really, really brought to the fore just how strong we are as a as a multidisciplinary team. So some really positives to come out of it, I think, as well. I think we're certainly ending the year with some positives to reflect on. And your role has changed quite a bit, hasn't it, since kind of throughout COVID? Do you mind just talking a little bit about again? I don't I don't know how you fit this in. You must sleep for about two hours a night. (laughs) (laughs) It's just it's just been a bit of a. A bit of a whirlwind, I guess. I was going to say whirlwind. Do you just feel like you've just been picking it up as you go along? Yeah, I think if anybody actually said to you, right, this is going to be your timetable for the next 12 months and this is what I want you to achieve in 12 months, you kind of laugh and say, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, give over. silly. But I I don't think, you know, that was never an option. So you kind of, it's been kind of a, you go from week to week, day to day, and you do what's thrown at you at that particular time. And then all of a sudden you get to the end of it and then think, hmm, not not really sure how I managed to fit all of that in to be honest I'm sure lots of people feel exactly the same um I think you know it the whole national interest in critical care and certainly the whole press interest particularly was never even remotely expected I remember the very first uh, telephone call that I took from the BBC asking me if I'd do a BBC interview. Um, Do you think it was a joke? Were you like, is, is that the BBC? <laughs> it's just like, really? Really? You want to talk to me? Really? And then, and then they said, oh, and we want you to come to the studio and do it. Oh, and we'll send you a car to pick you up. And I'm just like, wow, what, okay. is, what is, this is just really odd. And I remember sitting in the studio and you don't actually talk to a human being. All right. So, so now that we've all got used to using Zoom and Teams and things, you can probably think nothing of it. But then we didn't. We didn't have all of this IT stuff that we've learned over the last nine months. We didn't have then. So I remember sitting in this little square box on a stool with my notes in my hand, wondering how on God's earth I got myself into this mess, looking at a bright green flashing donut in front of me. And I had to talk to the donut. So I couldn't see who was interviewing me other than this round donut. And, and I remember just thinking, how on earth have I got myself into this? 
not realising that that donut was going to be the first of loads and loads and loads of interviews from, you know, both television and for radio and for newspapers and various other things. So it was, yeah, it's just been phenomenal, you know, and, and the fact that people know who, people know now what critical care is, hopefully understand a little bit more about critical care nursing is brilliant. Well, even my dad has been, who I thought, you know, having me as a daughter would have learned a bit about nursing and critical care and trauma ITU. Apparently not. He hasn't been listened <laughs> to any of the work stories. And he was watching um, the Royal Free documentary, The Hospital, and he rang yeah. and he went, Laura, do you know what? You've done some amazing things. And I was like, yeah, dad. Yeah, he went, well, there's this one woman. She's on a machine that breathes for her. And I was like, yeah, dad. <laughs> called a ventilator and it just it kind of we were talking about how people's knowledge has changed but it just amazed me how yeah people who you kind of think in your family kind of know what you do and they know what your role is and they have an idea when you've done a 12-hour shift and you come home on Christmas day you know they have a vague idea what you did that day um but no apparently apparently it's the hospital that the Royal Free have done a far better job than what I've ever done of (laughs) educating them about what we do on a day-to-day and you've also been involved with the nightingale yeah so back in march the end of march beginning of april um i was asked by the uh, lead for health education england north um if i'd be prepared to take the lead for critical care nurse education for the nightingale in harrogate with a view to, with a view to and again it's one of those things that you reflect on and think that's massive really because <laughs> i was literally given uh seven days with, so we had not we had nothing. So we we had no team, we had no educators, we had no lesson plans, we didn't even know what we wanted to teach. We literally had absolutely nothing whatsoever. And then seven days later, we delivered two days training to four hundred staff. Wow. So so again, that you know that ability to be, really be able to work at that kind of pace and to be able to bring people along with you was really really important and I remember the first day that I walked into the Nightingale at Harrogate and met Phil so Phil was a is an ICU anaesthetist um, and there was only me and Phil that were ICU trained and so between the two of us we you can imagine we were we were a bit like brother and sister for the whole thing if he went somewhere I went somewhere and that's very much what we need to look after each other here kind of thing but it was a it was an amazing amazing experience and certainly a lesson in how if you if you understand what you're doing how fast you can make something happen um oh we had some you know I mean I was literally sending out text messages and and um twitter requests to uh, nurse academics up and down the country that I knew, please, please, can you come and help me? Because I need some people to come and do some education. Um, and the amount of support that we got was, was just phenomenal. So it, yeah, it was um, a brilliant experience, absolutely phenomenal experience. And I'm, I'm really glad that we do it. I, I can't say I would like to repeat it again. <laughs> I don't I'm, think I'm you've got pressure to take it. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, uh, just an outstanding experience, something very proud of. And have you got any advice for any newly qualified nurses or students at the moment? Oh, go to ICU, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Rule number one. (laughs) Make make sure you get a critical care placement. Two, make sure you join BACCN. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Kind of. Um, You know what? It's it's about, for me, nursing nursing is so varied. So you can work in outpatients department, you can work in an intensive care unit, you can work in the community, you can work on a ship for the Navy. 
but it's about finding the bit of nursing that really, really floats your boat, that you're really passionate about, that you really love, and that you want to learn everything there is to know about that particular specialty. Um, and once you've got that, then the rest of it is easy because you'll automatically want to keep learning. You'll automatically love your job because you found the thing that you're really passionate about. I think as well, we're quite lucky in nursing. I think we're, we're surrounded by a lot of people that have done lots of training, different courses. And I think you're always, oh, you know, I've done my ITU course. Is there anything else going on? And then goes, oh, well, I did the trauma one or I did the neuro. Or, yeah. And I think we're kind of surrounded by that continual development anyway. I think as well, it's about remembering that we all have to have a voice. You know, the, you know I sometimes hear people say, oh, I'm, a, I'm just a nurse. No, you're not just a nurse. Mm-hmm you are a registered nurse and that, that's a really important uh, and respectful profession um, and we should stand up for it both ourselves individually and collectively as a profession and I think we need to do more of that and I think we need to make more clear what nursing in the 21st century is all about because yeah. I think there's still this perception that nurses kind of pat people on the head yeah, ask if they're all right give people a cup of tea and do what the doctor tells them to do yeah and, and that's not nursing that's not what we do. I think as well, the word nurse is so broad. You know, as you said, you, yeah. know, you kind of listed off your different professions. And yeah, like, um, and one of the reasons why I started with this podcast was, you know, I wanted nurses and registered and student nurses to be aware of how varied our profession is. And if they yeah. wanted to wake up one or they wanted to go, I want to be a sexual health nurse. I want to work in palliative care. I now want to be an outreach, a critical care outreach nurse. How do I kind of follow that path? How, yeah. you know, can I have some advice? And I think it, it's so broad and you can yeah. literally be, anything yeah and I think sometimes nursing is consumed into this idea that it's a caring profession and I don't dispute it's a caring profession but so is medicine so is paramedicine so is physio Mm -hmm. so is uh, policing so is being a fire officer like your sister as an example that they're all caring professions as well so is a social worker they're all caring professions as well but that doesn't mean that that is the be all and end all of that profession they're, you know, the people that do those jobs are still highly qualified expert clinicians in their own right. Yes, we're there to care for people, obviously. And yes, we need to be compassionate, obviously. But that's not the only thing that we do. So where do you see your career going? Apart from lying down for the whole of Christmas <laughs> <laughs> with the world's biggest cup of tea. Obviously, you're going to be doing that. <laughs> well, I must admit, I only need to get to Friday and then I've got some annual leave. Okay, so, so I am most the most well-deserved annual definitely. leave ever. <laughs> Definitely. From um from a career point of view, like I said, I've got an academic role now, so my, my career trajectory will be in academia. I've just got principal fellowship of the Higher Education Academy. So I'm, I'm thinking about an application to be a national teaching fellow. I'm a senior lecturer now. Um I probably would look at working towards trying to become a professor. I think that's probably what, where my career will pan out but I want to stay on a teaching and scholarship pathway rather than the research pathway I do quite I do quite a lot of research as well but I'm particularly interested in um, education particularly in relation to critical care so I think I think that's probably where my focus will be for the next 10 years lovely well thank you so much for joining me and thank you for asking my pleasure. It's been lovely. <laughs> it has it's been a pleasure so and good luck and have a lovely Christmas break thank you you too